Hello and welcome back to the Classical Music Pod. My name is Tim and this here man sitting next to me is Sam. It feels like everything has been flipped on its head this week. Indeed, we've got an Antipodean composer, an upside-down pianist. And Tim goes to a conventional classical concert and enjoys himself. Stormzy-related news to start with today. A report detailing the findings of Youth Music's four-year programme, Exchanging Notes, has been published. Run in partnership with Birmingham City University, the programme has aimed to find out how music can lead to greater social inclusion and personal growth if made more accessible. Mm. So the report essentially concludes that making music is a strong contributor to young people's personal and social development. So 95% of the pupils who took part maintained high attendance and demonstrated improved performance in other subjects like maths and English. Fab news. However, it also states that the curriculum doesn't deliver the kind of music that the pupils want to make. In other words, Bach, Mozart and Wagner are disconnected from their lives. Youth Music's CEO Matt Griffiths said... We've seen the benefits of students exchanging Mozart for Stormzy as part of a reimagined music curriculum. Mm, And then Stormzy responded via Twitter with this message. He said, The British media just got me beefing Mozart. I do not want to beef Mozart. Mozart is my guy. Peace. I think this is a really good point, that the two don't have to be exclusive. Mozart and Stormzy can work in conjunction in a good curriculum to help young people gain an initial interest in music and then discover some of the most important artefacts that humans have ever put together. It's also logical when you consider that Mozart and Bach would have been learning from the music of their contemporaries. But I think what's important to remember is that this should be about rebalance rather than erasure. And there's still a huge amount uh, to be learnt from past masters like Bach and Mozart. Yeah, and joy to be taken in listening to their music. Sticking with the Midlands, in the run-up to the Champions League final on Saturday the 1st of June, the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra are releasing You'll Never Walk Alone with mezzo-soprano Jennifer Johnston. They recorded this in December 2018 at their annual Spirit of Christmas concert in Liverpool Philharmonic Hall and because Liverpool are in the Champions League final, it's coming out again. And Sam, you've got a theory about this, haven't you? Well, I do believe that some of Liverpool's Champions League success is born out of You'll Never Walk Alone. It's really high, the end of You'll Never Walk Alone, and you get very pumped and excited just by singing it. It finishes you know, right on a top G, which is way higher than any man on the street would say they could sing. But the huge crowd and the energy going into that endorphins release surely must help them on the pitch. John Elliot Gardner, who we sat next to that time. In the foyer. Indeed. He has told the German radio station BR Classic that for him, Brexit is a double disaster. <laughs> he doesn't know how he will transport musicians and instruments back and forth across Europe. And as a farmer, it's the, I didn't know he was a farmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He grew up on a family farm and had Bach's portrait on his wall. Well, there we go. He says, as a farmer, it's even worse. I'm afraid of non-ecological and non-biological products from America. A chlorinated chicken from Donald Trump? This is a nightmare. Other farming musicians include Simon Keenleyside, who studied zoology in the baritone. And Gerald Finzi owned an orchard, I believe. Oh, cool. Two bits of bad news from the continent now, I'm afraid. 
The Vienna Ballet is in trouble. The president of the Viennese Constitutional Court, Brigitte Bierlein, has opened an inquiry into recent allegations of sexual abuse against a teacher at the State Ballet Academy. The Vienna State Opera has pledged full cooperation. An interim report is expected in July. Over in Paris, the opera have been fined €100,000 for causing injuries to two stagehands during a 2016 performance of Massenet's Weather. At the end of the first act, a 750-kilogram signboard collapsed, leaving one stagehand hospitalised for four months with a fractured leg and an ankle. Closer to home, the Royal Opera House have announced their 2019-20 season, featuring 17 new productions and six world premieres across the Royal Opera and Royal Ballet, the worst website to navigate in the world, by the way. Of the 19 confirmed orchestral conductors for its main stage opera productions, Only one is a woman, though, French conductor Ariane Matich, who will conduct some of the performances of a revival of Richard Jones's La Boheme in January. Now, theoretically, this shouldn't be so shocking. If you look at the last count by the Royal Philharmonic Society, only 22 of the 371 conductors represented by British agents are female, which is about 5.5%. Yeah, about 1 in 19 However, the Royal Opera House, with all its resources, should be leading the change, rather than just reflecting back the current state of affairs, I think. Indeed, and the director of opera there, Oliver Mears, has said, no, it is not an acceptable ratio at all, of course, but this is something which is a long-term project, it's not going to happen instantly, and in the following years we have a much better ratio of female conductors. Mm. Reminiscent of the National Theatre's artistic director, Rufus Norris, he said in an interview that we dropped the ball with regards to the entirely male-written plays that the National Theatre are putting on over the next few months. Boo. Better news, though, is that a project has emerged from a meeting between the Royal Ballet's director, Kevin O'Hare, and the former Labour leader, Ed Miliband, the MP for Doncaster North. This project aspires to work with every school in Doncaster, staging a mass participation event in the town and performing a show there. I used to go through Doncaster on the train a lot. Fascinating. And finally, in a desperate bid to make Switzerland famous for things other than Nazi gold, Toblerone and overpriced watches, pianist Alan Roche gave an airborne piano concert dangling from a crane over the site of a future hospital parking garage. Check in the description for a video. Don't you just love Upside Down Mozart? No! No! Sam, you've been doing some analysis this week. I have, Tim, because I have nothing else in my life other than Rebecca Clark's Viola Sonata. I've been pulling that one apart and examining how people have used gendered terms to describe sonata form in the past. I think once you get a handle on sonata form, it really opens up how you can listen to works in a different way. So I wanted to explain that. I think it will help people chart their way through some rocky seas of music. Analysis Written in 1919 and published in 1921, Rebecca Clark's Viola Sonata is a three-movement work that was written as a submission for a competition. A competition she would have won, and this is terrible, had the judges not assumed that the name Rebecca Clark was a pen name for a male composer. Those beardy 20th century bores thought surely no woman could write music that sounds like this.
The first thing to clear up is that a sonata and sonata form are different things. A sonata is like a formal three-course dinner. It's a bit of a statement. comes in three movements, fast, slow, fast, and is usually for piano or piano and solo instrument. Yummy. Sonata form is a musical structure that was often used in sonatas, but also crops up in symphonies, vocal music and concertos. It's structured kind of how we all wish Question Time would go. One idea is introduced. Ask me my three main priorities for government. And I tell you, education, education and education. Via a seamless transition, we reach a second idea. The ladies not for turning. (laughs) This exposition is brought to a close called a cadetta. After all, as I once said, I was the future once. (laughs) And if necessary, this exposition is repeated. Education, education and education. The ladies not for turning. After all, as I once said, I was the future once. These ideas are then fleshed out, matching compatible elements from each idea together. I thought I'd I'd never utter these words, but I agree with Gordon. I agree with Nick. I agree with every single word of it. You must have a consensus. At the end of this developmental section, we reach the two-thirds mark, the Fibonacci golden moment, the denouement. And that's the return of the original ideas. Education, education and education. Kind of like a classic essay structure, rounding up with a return to the ideas of the introduction. Traditionally, the second idea is now played in the key of the first, suggesting a level of submission, agreement or catharsis. Such a consensus can only be reached if those on all sides of the debate are willing to compromise. And it's at this point that I want us all to remember good Charlotte. Charlotte Bronte? No. Charlotte Church? Not even her. Charlotte Hawkins Brown, African-American author and founder of the Palmer Memorial Institute? No, not even her. American early noughties rock band Good Charlotte and their single Girls and Boys. Such a good tune. Such a good tune. But also a reflection of a different era's views on gender. That 2003 totemic masterwork of the pop-punk genre suggests a level of dichotomy, transaction, and a lack of fluidity between the genders that feels quite outdated only 16 years later. And it's relevant to Rebecca Clark's Viola Sonata, not just because it's also a banger, but because society was busy projecting its views on gender onto sonata form in 1919. Listen to the first theme of Clark's Viola Sonata and see if you feel that it has a masculine or feminine air. Since the 19th century theorist A.B. Marx... Any relation to Karl? No, not a relation of Karl. A.B. Marx described how the first theme of sonata forms tended to be decisive, the one constructed more energetically, more vigorously, more completely, and therefore more masculine. The second theme was subsidiary, feminine, gentler. A bloke called Vincent de Indy, who seems quite unpleasant by today's standards, suggested that in the second half of sonata form... The being of gentleness and weakness has to submit, whether by violence or persuasion, to the conquest of the being of force and power. Susan McClary famously likened this to sexual assault in her paradigm-shifting book, Feminine Endings. 
The bits of Clark's first theme that sound masculine by these parameters are the trumpet call, the military-ish leaping fifths and dotted rhythms. It's all a bit marchy. It's also loud and assertive. Here's the second theme. Listen out for Marx's feminine characteristics, hushed dynamics, smooth singing line and cautious stepwise movement from neighbouring note to neighbouring note. So far, it seems that Clark is conforming to the structure of sonata form very conventionally, even if there's little evidence to suggest that she spoke of themes as male and female. The moment she subverts the form is the denouement. Here's the moment of recapitulation in Beethoven 5. It feels triumphant, and here the masculine subject is undoubtedly winning. But in Clark, the frail return is further emphasized when the female subject returns in its own key that then carries on to the end of the movement, contributing and governing all the material until the end. In Clark's viola sonata, the feminine subject can be seen as bending the masculine to her will. Calling small s question time sonata themes male and female is just like the Good Charlotte lyrics, though, an outmoded projection of what gender was perceived to be at the time. Obviously, not all people who identify as male are loud and militaristic. The feminine descriptor is similarly narrow. What's maybe more interesting is that Big S sonata form, the three-course meal, was certainly a male preserve at this time. In the six contemporary reviews I could find of Clark's composing, Women Composer was the first line three times, and she is compared to male composers in four. In the final one, her music is described as virile, gestating and pregnant. Subtle. Very subtle. Big S sonatas were a male preserve, and still are in some respects. Serious long-form composing, not songs or miniatures or dainty chamber works, was certainly a male-dominated field in 1919. Women writing sonatas, or symphonies, were caught in a double bind, because they were either conforming to the confines of society's view of their gender, or they were abandoning their femininity to write masculine music. Clark's viola sonata is described as showing her having a strong right composing arm. Clark and others helped to change this state of play. Sonatas were no longer a male preserve, even if they contained themes we'd still call male and female. There's still work to do here. There are many others that are excluded from writing big S sonatas. Tim, I know you've been thinking about black African-American classical musicians who were caught in a similar double bind with jazz in the early 20th century. Yeah, people like Will Merriam Cook and Duke Ellington. So as society's views on gender, race, sexuality all change, we project different lenses onto art in order to comprehend it. That's the question time element. Good Charlotte would write a different song today than in 2003. What's more important, maybe, is that we ensure that the three-course meal sonata form is open to and reflects every part of society. 
composer fact file, Rebecca Clark. Born Harrow, England, 27th of August, 1886. Studied composition with Charles Villiers Stanford and Hubert Parry. Clark was one of six women allowed by Sir Henry Wood into his Queen's Hall Orchestra, but he excluded them from the Summer Proms Orchestra as he believed that it would be too tiring playing every day for ten weeks. Invented the pseudonym Anthony Trent for her piece Morpheus because she thought it silly to have her name listed twice in a program. She never conducted an orchestra. Male students at the Royal College were given four three-hour exams in two days. Women had them spread over four, as so not to be overexerted. Married pianist James Friskin in 1944. After her marriage, she stopped composing, despite encouragement from her husband. Her total output was 52 songs, 11 choral pieces, and 22 chamber music scores. She said of composing, I can't do it unless it's the first thing I think of every morning when I wake, and the last thing I think of every night before I go to sleep. Tim, you've been to a normal concert in a conventional concert hall. I don't know what's going on. Mm, I went to see the Elias Quartet at the Wigmore Hall, just for a change, you know. Yeah, mixing it up. It was a rather high art affair, stuffed with old age pensioners, and it started and ended with two thoroughly polished performances of quartet classics. So, the Mozart String Quartet, number 17, nicknamed The Hunt, and Schumann's third string quartet. Crucially, of course, The Hunt appears in Star Trek Insurrection. It does, yeah, and we have prepared three of our favourite quotes from Star Trek Insurrection. This is Commander William Riker. Our guests have arrived. They're eating the floral arrangements at the banquet tables. And the humanoid android Data says... In the event of a water landing, I have been designed to act as a flotation device. And finally, Jean-Luc Picard says... I should warn you, I've always been attracted to older women. High-quality bit of script writing there from the Star Trek team. You don't get enough Star Trek impressions on Radio 3, I always find. Sorry to the truck, Radio 3. Tell me about why it's called The Hunt. So the first movement's opening theme is a jaunty 6-8 horn core, which is what's given it the nickname The Hunt. And there is very much a sort of bucolic charm about the first movement. There's a quiet tune that opens the development section, which is characterised by these yodelling sixths. And it's prompted more than one writer to speak of shepherd pipes. Sounds like classic Mozart. Well, interestingly, contradictory to our perception of Mozart as this fast worker, because, of course, he wrote the Don Giovanni overture overnight, yeah. the night before the first performance, <laughs> the, this piece actually took him over a year to write. And there were a bunch of false starts in the process. So the mm. final movement was actually a second attempt. And the original, which is in the style of, of a polonaise, got as far as the 65th bar before Mozart realised that it wasn't what he wanted. Ah, what an oddity. Uh, tell me about the other quartet staple in the programme. So this was the Schumann String Quartet in A, which is his third and final, written in 1842. Now, 1842 is often described as his chamber music year, in which he wrote three quartets and the piano quartet, amongst other bits and pieces. And he actually noted in his diary in February, at the beginning of that year, that he was having constant quartet thoughts. And then in April... He wrote that he was devoted to an intensive study of the string quartets of Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven, which he felt necessary to do before writing any of his own. 
the third quartet mostly follows the suit of these classic composers. It's got four movements. It uses sonata forms with a few sort of Schumannian twists. So, for example, he cast his second movement, the scherzo, as a set of variations. So someone like Mozart would restrict his use of variations to either the slow movement or the finale. Unlike the Mozart quartet, this was written in about two weeks. Wow. I mean, that is nuts. It's bonkers. The first two quartets of the three that he wrote were written in June, and then the third was in July. Uh, In terms of standout moments for me, Mm -hmm. it's actually the first movement, uh, which is heavily reliant on this theme of a dis- of a dropping fifth. Yeah. Now, oh, the cool. quartet was dedicated to his wife, Clara. And if you play that little motif that crops up over and over again, mm. you can't help but hear the word Clara. Oh, how romantic. Um, how did the Elias get on with it? Extremely professional, extremely polished. And what struck me was that it felt like these players had been playing this music for years. And what was in the middle of this... Mozart Schumann sandwich. So we had a Bach Artifugue arrangement for a string quartet. Oh, like in the Vikram Seth book, uh, An Equal Music. Which I have not read. Ah, it's really worth a go. Very beautiful. Um, if you're going to read one Vikram Seth book, read The Golden Gate. But if you're going to read a second, read An Equal Music. Literary reviews here on the Classical Pod. Mm. Now, what made this programme stand apart from your slightly more old farty concerts that you might get at the Wigmore Hall was yeah. the fact that they, the Elias had actually commissioned a brand new piece of music to complement the Schumann Quartet. Fab. This was written by a young composer called Robert Layla, a young British composer, and his link to the Schumann was that both of the works are dedicated to their partners. In his case, he repurposes the melody from a Maori folk tune called Pokari Kari Anna in reference to his fiancée, whose Maori middle name is the title of the work. Superb pronunciation, born of your year in New Zealand, no doubt. Absolutely. As you can tell, I immersed myself in Maori culture. (laughs) And we hear this melody towards the end of the piece after a completely chaotic opening section where you get these seagull-like glissandos, you know, like... I do, yeah, yeah, yeah. And pizzicatos in there really ingeniously shared amongst the players in a way that almost emulates enthusiastic conversation at a dinner table. Cool. I think. Yeah. And he actually described this piece as a conversation between the different instruments. Mm. So despite my original reticence at going to a Wigmore Hall concert, because it could it be really quite farty. stuffy and farty, I actually had a really good time, and I think that both composer and the Elias String Quartet are musicians very much to watch out for. Here's a little clip of Robert Lalo's piece, which he kindly provided for us. Thank you, Robert. <laughs>
This week I've been listening to the new disc from Carla Records, Miriam Hyde's Dancing Shadows, a collection of verse and flute music by the Australian composer. Why have you picked this one out? Well, I think I have positive associations with the name Hyde. Uh, Marina Hyde writes brilliant satire for The Guardian. Dan Hyde is a brilliant choral conductor who I learnt a lot from. Stephen Hyde is a really nice composer, friend of yours. Uh, and his brother James is the director for Three Inch Fool. Yeah, whose show I went to see on Friday night. So, I mean, this is why I love... Hi- I mean, I know I like Dr. Jekyll as well. So, I mean, it's th- lots of positive associations. And I thought you don't hear much music by Australians. Percy Granger was basically naturalised to Britain and was racist. Uh, and, you know, I thought I'd try something new. And was it a good move? No! No. Uh, so I want to be as positive as possible because, you know, that's that's who I am. But um, I will preface the rest of this by saying that when I played the disc to Nurse Betty on a car journey, she did ask, why have I done this to her? So, (laughs) not ideal. Positives. There's one track I like. It's called The Little Juggler. It's a two-minute track, the third part of five solos for flute and piano. It has some fun dialogue between the piano and flute and some lively rhythms. Negatives. That's it with the positives. Uh, I'm afraid so. Okay, so broad-scale issues. It's a disc of poems and music. And I wasn't left with the impression that either are of particularly high quality. It would have been really nice to have them alternating or something, maybe, in terms of programming. It just all goes music and then words. And that feels like quite a lopsided disc. The music's quite long and then the... or feels quite long. And then the poems are actually really quite short. Um, And the poems are read by Gerard Maguire. If he's not immediately springing to mind, then I'm sure we are all familiar with his role as Deputy Governor Jim Fletcher in the Australian soap opera Prisoner. Oh, Prisoner, yes. Yeah, if that doesn't bring him to mind, I don't know what will. Um, I would say that his poetic delivery is sort of sub-Dylan Thomas, but it's actually a little bit further than that, sort of sub-Gareth Thomas or Giant Thomas. Do not go gentle into that good night. I mean, but that it were as fine as that, Timothy. Uh, Back to the music, I think that one of the reasons the disc and the sonatas feel flawed is that despite the sort of individually attractive flutters and moments, there are whole swathes of it that feel the same. They're sort of middly tempo, middle dynamic, middle range, and there are very few of those gestural moments that we can really um, hang fresh sections on. Um, Maybe that's the performers, maybe it's the pieces, but compared to Madeleine Mitchell or Vanessa Wagner, who I've been talking about lately, who really advocate for their composers by being artistically decisive, interpreting a forte or an accent to really mean something, um, you know, there's none of that on this disc. It just doesn't happen, and it all blurs into one extended, medium-sized flute sonata. On a smaller scale, I think that actually the lack of rhetoric and gesture is in the individual pieces, in the composing. There are these phrases that seem to go on and on and on without any rests, without any breath. It's quite like me talking and it makes me quite anxious. And I remember the conductor, (gasps) Colin Metters, telling me that he once asked the oboist Nicholas Daniel, who he worked with quite a lot, not to circular breathe in some places because the audience actually, they need that release to feel the structure of the piece. And the lack of rests means that there's no impetus, there's no direction of travel within these individual lines. You don't get a little freight structure that then builds into a bigger freight structure that then can feel like the opening of a piece. Just none of that, um, those building blocks are present. I feel a bit less qualified to talk about the poems, but to me, they seem a little bit facile. Um, Sort of Dr. Zeus about nature stuff, but without the comedic or childish fantasy element. 
uh, it's sort of uh, a match for the GCSE tone of the composition. Mm, so not a disc you would recommend running out and buying. I'm afraid not. And actually, worst of all, if you did want, if you're a big fan of Miriam Hyde and you wanted to go and get this disc, it costs a mind-numbing 31 squirrels. Well, let me add a positive to this. You mentioned <laughs> young Stephen and James Hyde. Yeah. Their performances of Macbeth and Much Do About Nothing are much cheaper than that, and they're going to be in beautiful country houses all around the country over the summer, and they're fantastic musical adaptations of classic Shakespeare plays. Go and see that rather than buy this disc. Earlier this week, I spoke to Sven McEwen Brown, who's the founder and artistic director of the East Nuke Festival, which takes place every year in various locations along the East Nuke of Fife coastline in Scotland. Here he is over Skype, giving me the lowdown on what to expect at the festival, which takes place this year from the 26th to the 30th of June. Sven, thanks for coming on the pod. You've got a really exciting lineup at the festival this year. Are there any artists you're particularly looking forward to having? You know, as a festival director, I'm obliged to say, of course, all of them. Um, but actually, I can't quite genuinely say that. The, the thing is, with the Snook, it's not a huge festival. It's five days, which is common enough with smaller festivals. If you think about things like St Magnus and all of those different festivals, they're all around five days. And that gives us the capacity to do around 20 concerts if we do morning, noon and night. And that means that actually there's no need with so many brilliant things that I do want to have in the festival to have anything there that was less than an absolute desert island disc me. So I can't quite genuinely put my hand on my heart and say everyone from the young musicians right up to the huge names like Elizabeth Leon Skyer, Belcher Quartet and Pavel Haas Quartet. I suppose if I was to say, is there something that was hard won and extra exciting? For me, it probably is the fact that um, Belcher and Pavel Haas and Elizabeth Leon Skyer are all artists that I've got a very long relationship with. So the joy of them all finding the idea of cooperating on this year's programme, that is extra special. And I noticed in the past you've been putting on concerts in slightly more unusual venues like uh, Nuclear Bunker, uh, St Philan's Cave. Yes, um, well, in the end, East Nuke actually doesn't have any venues. So for anyone who doesn't know where the East Nuke is, if you go to Edinburgh, and just look direct north across the Firth of Forth, and then take that bit pointing out into the North Sea, east of that. That's kind of the East Nuke there. So it's a rural area. It was a fishing and farming community. And it's got loads of really gorgeous medieval churches, halls, that kind of thing, but no actual venues. So when we started the festival back in 2004, we spent a lot of time driving around just trying to identify buildings that we could use. And that kind of developed into thinking, well, 
what if you're going to do a festival in a place that doesn't actually have a concert hall, why don't you make a virtue of it and find really, really interesting, atmospheric, historically interesting, or anyway, places with a story, work with them, program for them, and make something really unique. I wouldn't want it ever to become a gimmick as such, but I do think that some of the best programming that we've done has resulted from going to something like a nuclear bunker and then just letting your imagination run riot and then taking the artists there and seeing what happens. This year is actually quite a moderate year in that sense um, because we are doing a huge project in a field right enough, but most of the other venues are ones that our audience will be familiar with, certainly there's the, the lovely churches and this wonderful barn, the Bow House, which makes a great concert hall. I also noticed you place quite a heavy emphasis on the importance of chamber music at the festival. And since 2015, I think you run this retreat there for chamber musicians. I was wondering what your goals are there and why you think this impetus on chamber music with young musicians is so important. Chamber music is the heart of the festival. So it's natural for us to be interested in the future of chamber music. And it is a tough, tough thing as a young artist to try and make a career as a chamber musician. Your fees will go down, your performance opportunities will become scarcer, the repertoire demands longer rehearsal and greater commitment, and in a string quartet you're dependent on finding three other people who are as passionate about what you're doing as you are. So it's a really, really challenging thing to do, and it's not surprising that many, many young musicians either opt to try and make it as a soloist or will find an orchestral position to support them while they explore their other interests. So we've always supported young artists in the sense of giving dates, looking for outstanding musicians that we're interested in, all that kind of stuff. But my hope for the retreat is that we can then give something a little bit further again. And we're not final about what it is. It's been going for four years. And so far what's happened is that a group of up to eight or nine young string players has come to the Nuke, spent five to ten days behind closed doors, having an incredibly intense, I mean, 12, 16-hour day intense chamber music experience, working with top musicians, and also sharing not just the music, but also practice, how you behave in rehearsal, how you work, how you consider style, a whole load of learning that they can have from amazing musicians and they give two concerts but the concerts in a way are the icing on the cake they're not the necessary bit because from what I hear from the musicians afterwards the things they carry away with them are lessons from the musicians that they learned behind those closed doors and they will stay with them for years so that's tier one if you like but this year we're going on to tier two which is that from the 40 or so musicians that we have worked with so far I've just picked out two that particularly spoke to me, which is Benjamin Baker, wonderful violinist, and a phenomenal viola player called Diang Mei. And I just invited them back to say, would you like to do something more? So this year they play solo, they play a concerto, and they join the retreatants in the chamber music as before. And if the festival's got a selfish aim in this, it's that we want to make strong relationships with exceptional musicians as early as possible so that we both can then go on to do amazing things together. And the guitarist Sean Sheba has been involved with the festival in the past. 
You mentioned that he approached you about his Soft Loud project, which is this mix of electric and acoustic guitar music. How did you help develop this project? It's interesting, isn't it, how, how these things evolve. So Sean first came just to do a straight recital years ago. Then he returned and did two contemporary recitals, which still carried the audience with them. And in a sense, I could see that we could go on forever every couple of years having Sean back to do a recital. So my hope was that we could do something a bit better than that. He's a very thoughtful, inspiring musician. He has lots of different ways of looking at his repertoire, but different ways of looking at repertoire and formats and so on need a lot of support because most promoters are quite conservative and the need for somewhere to act as a bit of an incubation, a bit of a nursery place is powerful, I think. So the essential idea started when he played Steve Rice Electric Counterpoint in a festival I did in Glasgow. And that set me thinking about how he might do something with electric and acoustic guitar. Now, Sean is the kind of person that you can say that to and he will quietly go away, think about it and come back with some brilliant suggestions. And that evolved into a very rich mix of repertoires, none of which was mainstream. 16th century dancers from Scotland from an obscure lute book in Fife, a piece for nine bagpipes by Julia Wolfe, which he arranged. And he somehow moulded this into something special. And where we as a festival could support him was the tech team could help him test drive all of the tech. We could help draw up his tech spec for future stuff. We could help him with the PR. We could help with things like finessing the repertoire and also in very practical ways. In Scotland, there is something called Showcase which is open to all kinds of performances to have funding to put on a showcase at the Edinburgh Festival at the Fringe. So I helped Sean make that application, get it through. He successfully got the funding and then he was off. He just ran. So what we got out of it as a festival was the first taste of all of that. And then the satisfaction of seeing it go to Edinburgh. And now I think he's done it worldwide and it's an award-winning album as well. You know, I think small festivals with that personal touch and with that ability to take a certain amount of risk, we can do things like that in a way that I think larger festivals often miss that opportunity. You've also got a art installation running alongside the festival this year at Kelly Castle. Is that in any way linked with what you're doing or does that just happen to be running concurrently? Yeah, I mean, we always have an element of fun, large-scale outdoor art. We have, over many years, done these huge sand drawings of famous composers on Ely Beach. One year, there was a huge labyrinth that was uh, created as a sort of tennis court-sized piece of art that was also something that kids could play on. So it's an important aspect of the festival that we're not poncy, we're not stuffy. We do like a bit of fun, but we do also like a bit of art. So this year's one, it ties into the local history, the local community. On the harbour front in one of the villages, Celadike, there's this drying green, which is basically where women would come and dry the laundry. It's been there for centuries. And every time I go there, I kind of think it'd be really brilliant to do something there. But I mean, as a site, it's just too small and it's just too inaccessible and it would just be crazy. So there is the most beautiful flower meadow in Kelly Castle, which isn't too far away. And my idea was 
that just like the drying green in Celadite would it be a place of work, but it also would be a place of community, a place where you'd meet your neighbours, where you'd have a chat, maybe where, you know, women would be able to exchange news, whatever else. So important in a quiet kind of a way. So the idea of this is we're doing a huge drying green. It's almost a kilometre's worth of washing, if you like, that's going to be hung up on these huge poles going right the way across this flower meadow, going to be visible for quite a few miles around. And basically all the colours will be evocative of these nuke and we will be putting pop-up concerts into it. And my hope is that it does a couple of things for us, that it draws people to it for the fun and the joy of it. For me, I, th I just think the whole idea of seeing a huge number of multicoloured sheets billowing in the wind is a joyful sight. So hopefully that will be you know, happy in itself. And then if it does bring people together and they listen to a bit of music and they have a picnic and the weather's good, then it creates that sense of festival outdoors for quite a lot of people in a way that if you're a chamber music festival, it's quite hard to do. So this is the kind of shout out happy side of the festival. Well, it sounds absolutely magical and we wish you all the best of luck with the festival. Thank you very much for coming onto the pod. You're Great. very welcome. Thanks for having me. Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. Coming up, great stuff. It's a really good coming up great this week. Great stuff. It must all be kicking off for summer. On Wednesday the 29th, the San Francisco Ballet are in London, and they're performing a Shostakovich trilogy choreographed by Alexei Ratmansky, and that's at Sadler's Wells Theatre. Out in the Chilterns, the Garsington Opera are opening their new production of Smetner's The Bartered Bride. It's a really strange opera, that. I have actually seen it. It's very, very weird. Uh, good birthdays as well. Eric Korngold, one of our favourites, and Yanis Zanakis. Famously a architect as well as a composer. What a clever chap. On Thursday the 30th, Julia Fisher and the LSO are performing John Cage's ballet score to the seasons at the Barbican under Michael Tilson Thomas. Don't often get to see him. Don't often get to see John Cage. Well worth going to that one. Glyn Braun have a new production of Berlioz's La Damnation de Faust. And Garsington Opera have got a new production of Don Giovanni. It's all the money. Mm, it's also Pauline Oliveros's birthday. Have I said it right? Oliveros, actually. Uh, quite a cool Israeli composer. Mm. Um, Friday the 31st, City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra play Brahms II, possibly the best symphony ever. And that's under Mirga in Birmingham Symphony Hall. So let's like, go and see that. It'd be great. Saturday the 1st of June is the Cambodian National Tree Planting Day. You know, I am so pleased we're staying abreast of the National Tree Planting Days globally. It keeps me grounded. Mm. At 11 o'clock on Saturday, if you're in Worcestershire, there's a coffee concert with the Elgar Chorale at the Furs, which is where Elgar was born. If you're in another shire, in Oxfordshire, go and see the Oxford Philharmonic Orchestra perform one of Tim's favourites, Frederick Septimus Kelly's Elegy for String Orchestra in memoriam Rupert Brook. Also in Worcestershire. It's all going on in Worcestershire. Indeed, you can catch the rarely spotted Fontanella recorder quintet playing Monteverdi Bird, Lidiodov and Sanson. And finally, Sunday the 2nd of June, at the Royal Festival Hall, the Philharmonia are performing three world premieres from composers Alex Wolfe, Benjamin Ashby and Chia Ying Lin. It's also a good set of birthdays on Sunday. We have Edward Elgar... Thomas Hardy, presumably the writer rather than the actor, Zachary Quinto, Dominic Cooper, and cricketer, cheating cricketer, I think to give him his full title, Steve Smith. Another dodgy Australian. 
Yeah, well, I don't think we want to impeach Miriam Hyde's character, merely the quality of her disc. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Thanks. Thanks to many this week. Yes. First thanks go to Joey Edwards. Joey and I have sung together for a few years now, and despite that, he's actually a big old fan of the pod and still sounding excellent. After our latest episode, he enjoyed the Sati and said he was performing some Sati around his birthday. So here's a little snippet from our favourite Hobbit-sized baritone. Also many thanks to Carla Records for sending us the Miriam Hyde disc and to MSR Records for letting us use the Rebecca Clark Viola Sonata recording by Hilary Herndon and pianist Weichun Bernadette Lowe. Final thanks to Tim Price, possibly the pod's biggest non-familial fan, uh, although Bernard Hughes is actually very supportive on Twitter. Um, I saw Tim in Salisbury this weekend when I was singing, and he came and said how much he likes the pod, how much he enjoyed his bespoke bark analysis, so a quick shout-out to Tim Price.